it's kind of a wonder that anybody can resist overeating given what's going on. The part of the brain that's responding to food addiction, the survival drive that says we need these bags and boxes in order to live, that part of the brain doesn't know love. The reptilian brain is a creature of impulse, supercharged by the concentrated foods that are available today. The way that I recovered after 30 years of suffering, I decided I had this pig inside of me. Changing the paradigm from comfort to addiction, creating these rules, listening very carefully for part of your brain that suggests that you break these rules, and then disempowering them. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I am so excited to have this interview in the books. It's a resource I've been wanting to have so long for listeners because I recommend this book so often. I cannot even tell you, even if you don't struggle with quote binge eating, if you at all struggle with emotional eating, overeating, really any anxiety surrounding food, as well as other addictions as well, the never binge again technique is truly a game changer. This conversation with Glenn was absolutely fantastic. I think you'll find it so helpful. So please enjoy. The show notes will have the links to everything we talk about, as well as a full transcript. You can get that at melanieavalon.com slash never binge again. There will be a giveaway for this episode. I do it every week. Just join my Facebook group. That is IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Check out the pinned post. That's the post at the top talking about this episode, and there will be a giveaway. All you do is comment something you learned, something that resonated with you, really just anything that's inspired by this episode, and I will enter you to win something fun. And one thing I'm kind of sad about, as you guys know, I always end every single episode by asking the guest something they're grateful for. Well, in this conversation, I was just so in the moment, so enthralled with the conversation that I totally forgot to ask Glenn what he was grateful for. And that made me really sad. So I emailed him and asked him what his answer was. He said he was grateful for cool, fresh ocean breezes on warm nights in Florida. They invigorate my soul. Well, Glenn, they invigorate my soul as well. I grew up always going to Florida and specifically Sanibel Island in the summers, and I love a nice, warm, beachy night. Actually, when I first moved to California, one of the things that was a little bit distressing to me was the fact that the beaches there at night are cold and that the water is cold and that there aren't seashells or dolphins. Instead, there are just whales. Apparently. I don't know. I never saw one, but that's what they say. (laughs) I think the reason it distressed me the most was that It's like I would go to the beach and it would activate all these beach memories, but then everything was just off. So it's like when you have a dream where you know where you are, but something's just off. That's how I feel about California beaches. How about you guys? How do you guys feel about beaches? Are you California beach type person or Florida beach type person? Let me know in my Facebook group. I actually really, really want to know. Two other places I often do giveaways, my Instagram. So definitely follow me there. That's at Melanie Avalon. I'm still super shy about Instagram, but we are trying. We are trying. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am just almost giddy with excitement about the interview that I am about to have. It is with the author of a book, which is probably, I was thinking about this. I am also the co-host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, 
And I think this book is probably the book I recommend the most to our listeners. We get a lot of questions about dealing with cravings, appetite, binging, food issues, emotional issues surrounding food, and even questions not even related to all of that. I cannot tell you how many times I recommend the book, Never Binge Again, how thousands of people have stopped overeating and binge eating and stuck to the diet of their choice by reprogramming themselves to think differently about food. And listeners, This book is incredible. I am so excited to dive deep into it today. It's truly, I think, what so many people just need. It's a radical, different approach, I think, to the whole binging, overeating problem that so many people face in today's society. So thank you so much. I am here with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me and for that lovely introduction. I need you to follow me around and tell my dad and stuff like that. So. I could do that. And you have other books as well, a whole series, and the Never Bench Again series. But to start things off, so you have a really interesting background. You are a veteran psychologist, but you're also the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm with a lot of credits to its name. And you do talk about your personal history in Never Bench Again. But for listeners who aren't familiar, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your own story and your own food struggles and what brought you to this radical epiphany you had with the Never Binge Again technique? I would love to tell your listeners that. Let me just make a minor deviation from what you said. I, I no longer do the research and consulting for big companies. I, I do Never Binge Again full-time these days. But I did. For many, many years, I did in both a clinical psychologist and a marketing consultant for big industry. I did that for many, many years. What's really more important for your listeners to know. I'm not just a doctor who decided to work with weight loss patients. I'm I'm a guy who struggled with food his whole life, up until my early 40s. When I was 17 or so, I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, and I, I discovered that if I worked out for a few hours a day, I could eat anything I wanted to. You know, whole pizza or two, box of muffins, box of donuts, bars and bars of chocolate, lattes, anything you can imagine. If it wasn't nailed down, I I often joke that if you happen to pass by the pizza place and they were all out, it's probably because I was there before. It is that kind of thing. And I didn't think that was a problem in my youth. I ate a lot, I slept a lot, and I worked out a lot. And because I didn't have that many responsibilities, and I was a pretty smart kid, so I could get by school. It was fine. It was really fine. It was fun. But I got married when I was 22. And, you know, I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists and psychologists and counselors. And it's always been critically important to me to be a good psychologist. That's kind of the meaning of life for me. I didn't want to do anything else. And as I started to step into that role, and I was married and I had responsibilities and I was commuting two hours to school each day in each direction. And I was seeing patients and I was actually helping to run a small business with my wife. I just didn't have the time to work out. I mean, a little bit, just a little bit, maybe a half hour, twice a week, right? And I found that I couldn't stop thinking about food anyway. It's like the food had a life of its own. And this really bothered me not only because I was getting fat, 
but because it was interfering with my ability to be present with patients. And like I said, that was the most important thing in the world. And the kinds of patients I was working with, especially as I got a little older, were high-risk patients. I worked with couples right after an affair, or I'd work with you know, children that were having nightmares, or I would work with suicidal teenagers. And if anybody knows anything about psychology, it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, it is. You got to study and learn and piece together why people are doing what they're doing and what might be a better solution and you know what, how you can intervene. But, but really, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And you, you have to be there to lend them your soul. And Melanie, I wasn't. I, I, I just, I'd be sitting with these suicidal people and I'd be working hard at it, but I'd also be thinking about when I could get to the deli and, you know, dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the tray into it. And it really bothered me. It was the fundamental problem in my life. But because I came from a family of therapists where, you know, if something breaks in the house, people ask it how it feels, they don't really know how to fix it. I really thought that everything was related to psychology. I really thought that there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could fill the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. So I was trying to love myself thin, various different angles. I, I went to see some of the best psychologists and psychiatrists in the world in New York City. And I, you can imagine from my family that I knew them. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous, even conducted my own 40,000-person study at a certain point, kind of in the late 90s. And I was just looking at, like, what's hurting me so much? And why am I trying to fill up with food? And over time, there were three things that caused me to flip the paradigm and decide that I was not going to be able to love myself then or nurture my inner wounded child back to health in order to fix this. It was going to be more like having to become the alpha wolf in my own body and taking charge of this thing inside me that seemed to crave the worst things at the worst times to the exclusion of whatever plans I seemed to make. I call it a case of the ethics, where I just constantly get these, these, you know, just screw it, do it, start tomorrow, that kind of thing. And I finally realized that that was not coming from a part of my brain that knew love. It wasn't a hole in my heart. Yes, I had holes in my heart, but that wasn't the cause of the binge eating problem. Here's how I knew that. First of all, I was doing a lot of consulting for big food and big pharma. And well, big food in particular, I saw them spending probably billions of dollars. I never really added it all up, but on the rocket scientists, like, like the best food scientists in the world were getting the best money at these big food companies. And their job was to engineer these hyperpalatable substances, concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that targeted the consumer's lizard brain, the reptilian brain, the fight or flight, feast or famine responses that said that it was an emergency that we ate these things. And they target the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And I said, that has nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or that I'm in a bad marriage or anything like that. That's, that's a purely, purely external force. 
and it's a very powerful force. And, you know, most people think that they are not under the influence of those kind of forces. They don't like to recognize how strong those forces can be, but they're exceptionally strong. Then there's the advertising industry. You know, like there are five to 7,000 messages beamed at us per year about food over the internet and the airwaves. And maybe a half dozen of them say to have more fruit and vegetables. You know, so we're being told that these things are healthy for us. For example, I remember consulting for the VP of a major food bar manufacturer. And he told me, kind of bowed his head and he was embarrassed. He said their biggest, most profitable insight was when they took the vitamins out of the bar and they put the money into the packaging instead. I said, so you mean that you have this vibrant, colorful, diverse packaging, which in nature, diverse, vibrant colors would represent a diversity of nutrients that are available. Like think of a big salad with green lettuce and purple cabbage and maybe some oranges and blueberries and you know, an apple or big red apple. A diversity of nutrients, that's what you're signaling the brain, but you actually took the vitamins out of the bar. And he kind of said, yep. And I don't mean to single them out because that was going on all across the industry. So I said, these are two really powerful forces that are aligned against us. And then the addiction treatment industry was telling us that we're diseased, that we're powerless, that we can't control ourselves even if we wanted to, the best we could hope to do. We couldn't quit any of this. We had to abstain one day at a time. And I said, well, these are three really powerful forces that are aligned against me that have nothing to do with my psychological struggles. You know, yes, I've got psychological struggles, but these have nothing to do with that. And it's kind of a wonder that anybody can resist overeating given what's going on. Then the final thing that really, well, I also read a book by Jack Trimpey called Rational Recovery, where he talked about the bipartite nature of the brain. There was the reptilian brain and then there was us. And that everything that was important to us as human beings really lived in the upper brain and that the lower brain was a much more primitive animal. The way I think of that, having studied a little more neurology, and I'm, I'm by no means an expert. I know enough to be dangerous and a neurologist would take me to task on this. I, I, I'm a psychologist. I'm PhD, talk therapist, that kind of guy. But you know, I studied enough to figure out that the part of the brain that's responding to food addiction, the survival drive that says we need these bags and boxes and containers in order to live, that part of the brain doesn't know love. That's the reptilian brain. And what it knows is eat, mate, or kill. The reptilian brain sees something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? And I mean, that really struck me. I said, so all these years, this powerful force inside me, it's separate and apart from the part of my brain that knows love. I mean, love starts in the mammalian brain that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on the ones that you love and your tribe and your family? And then on top of that brain is the neocortex, which says, you know, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about your long-term goals? What about the contribution you want to make to society? What about your intellectual pursuits? What about your spirituality or your music or your art or, you know, leaving a legacy and that kind of stuff? And so I said, wow, so this is going to have to be a game of me asserting superiority the same way that I do with my bladder or my reproductive organs. So if I had to pee really badly right now, Melanie, I wouldn't go because I'm talking to you, right? 
and we're, we're accomplishing a task and it's something that's important to both of us. And I would tell my bladder, look, I, I know you got to go. I'll take care of it sooner or later. I'm not going to ignore the need entirely, but I'm in charge. You're going to have to wait. You are, you are my subject. You're here to serve me. I have a certain degree of responsibility to make sure that it gets taken care of. But the bladder is there to serve me. I'm like the alpha wolf in my body. You know, if I see really attractive women on the street, I don't run up and kiss her. As a matter of fact, I probably never talk to her because I get horribly shy, but that's another story. But there are ways to be civil about that in society. We, we have responsibilities. We all live with these biological impulses. And we accept as part of our civil responsibility that we're in charge and they aren't in charge. And if you don't accept that, you can get in a lot of trouble, right? If I ran up to an attractive woman and I kissed her, I can get in a lot of trouble or, or did something worse. So being a civilized person de facto means that you have to develop your character to be in charge. And I started to think, well, maybe this just was just another story. And I also said to myself, well, you know, when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership in the pack, because that's essentially what's happening. I would make these rules I wanted to follow or read this diet book that I was going to do on Monday morning. And then Monday afternoon, I'd be in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks. And this thing inside me would tell me that I could, you know, I could wait till tomorrow. And I worked out hard enough. It didn't really matter. I said, I'm really being challenged for leadership. And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It says, growls and it snorts and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. So it's a game of domination. The last thing that really convinced me was a personal story. Had done this study over the course of about five years when internet clicks were cheap and it was easy to get these things done. I had about 40,000 people take a survey in which they told me the very specific types of things they couldn't stop eating once they started, the types of stress they had in their life. And I found that people who were struggling with chocolate like I did, they tended to be lonely, brokenhearted, or a little depressed. So they were struggling with a romantic life. People who struggled with hard, crunchy, salty things like chips and pretzels, they tended to be stressed, tended to be stressed at work. And the people who struggled with soft, chewy things, like you know, bread or bagels or even pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought that was fascinating. And I thought that, well, that's a really great piece of diagnostic information. And one of the first things I could ask people if I was going to work with them, and back then I was mostly trying to figure it out for myself, but I said, wow, I could just start with, what do you eat? And then I know what area of life to probe, and it's going to save me some time. But before I, because I wasn't going to help anybody at that point, I was just trying to figure it out for myself. And maybe I thought maybe someday I would. But I, I went to my mom first, and I said, well, mom, you know, you not only raised me, but you're a therapist. What do you think about this? You know, yes, I'm unhappy in the marriage and um, I am a little lonely and depressed, but how could this pattern have been set up? You know, was there something in my childhood that you could point to that would have made it so I rent the chocolate when I feel lonely or depressed or brokenhearted? And she looks at me, this was over Skype. She says, I'm so sorry, Glenn. And I said, mom, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's 40 years ago, whatever it is. You know, I forgive you. I, I just want to figure this out. And she says, I'm so sorry. When you were one year old in 1965, they were talking about sending your dad to Vietnam. For a while, they were not taking, he was a captain in the army. He was a psychologist in the army. For a while, they were not taking people with even one kid, but they were talking about sending him anyway. And I was terrified. 
And so we were trying to get pregnant with your sister, but it wasn't happening. And I was scared that they're going to send him to Vietnam and he's going to get killed. And at the same time, your grandfather, my dad, he'd just gotten out of prison. And I had adored him my whole life, but it turns out he was guilty. And my whole life fell apart. And half the time when you came running to me for love, or even for some healthy food, I didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you. And so what I, I was just sitting and staring at the wall, feeling depressed myself. And so what I would do is I kept a refrigerator with a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup on the floor. And I'd say, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to it. And you'd eagerly open up the refrigerator and open the bottle. And you'd suck on the top. And you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And I could resume just staring at the wall. And see, if this were the movies, at this point, we would have had a big hug and a big cry. And I would never have trouble with chocolate again. Because now I found the reason. Now I found the source. and. You know, now, now I could go on binge-free. My binges always started with chocolate, by the way. It was always the first breaking point, and then, then I would have pizzas and donuts and muffins and stuff. And what happened was, I mean, it, it was a good moment. It was a good conversation to have. It led me to learn a lot more about my mom. I certainly forgave her, and I forgave myself. My self-hatred died down a little bit after that, a lot. I, I felt compassionate for what I went through, and I understood what that hole in my heart might have been about. So it was a healing moment, but my binges got worse, particularly with chocolate. And the reason they got worse was that there was this little voice in my head. And the voice went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Your mama left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart by not loving you enough when you were little. And until you can find the love of your life and get out of this marriage, you're going to have to keep on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some more right now. Yippee. And what I learned from that moment, what I learned from that story, was that there's a different paradigm to conceptualize emotional eating that allows you to sever the link between the emotion and the behavior. So it's not that there's not an association between the emotion and the behavior, but if you think about, say your emotion is a fire, and say it's in a roaring fireplace. So you've got this big roaring fire, this big deal emotional upset, and it's a fire in a fireplace. Well, if there's a good fireplace containing that emotion, then it doesn't matter how big or upsetting it is. It stops even one ash from getting out and burning down the house. And as a matter of fact, that fire becomes the center of hearth and home. It's actually a good thing. People gather around it, they keep warm, they make memories, they tell stories, they make memories. When there's a hole in the fireplace, and I came to think of this little voice as poking holes in the fireplace, then even the smallest fire can allow ashes to escape and burn down the house. It becomes very dangerous. And so I stopped thinking of my goal as the necessity to put out the fire, and I started thinking about it as making sure there was a really good fireplace built around the fire so that the fire couldn't do any damage and it was just a part of life. So here's what I did. And Melanie, this is a little embarrassing and I wasn't going to share this publicly um, until I wrote the book five years later or probably eight years later. You know, because I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I was known publicly for a lot of my research studies and things like that. But the way that I recovered after 30 years of suffering 
I decided I had this pig inside of me. I decided to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. And I'd draw very clear lines in the sand that would make it abundantly obvious what healthy behavior and unhealthy behavior was. Like I, I would make decisions about how I wanted to be with chocolate, for example. And initially, it was something like, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. Very clear black and white line. You could tell from that clear black and white line whether any thought was suggesting that I cross it. And if 10 people observed me all month, they would tell you whether I ever had chocolate on a weekday, they'd all agree. So it wasn't like, well, I'm going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time. It was no, I'll never have it on a weekday again. And then I decided that if I was at Starbucks and there was a little voice in my head that said, you worked out hard enough, Glenn, you're not going to gain any weight, even though it's a Wednesday, you might as well have some chocolate. Yippee, you can just start tomorrow. I would say to myself, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig. And my inner pig is squealing for pig slop because chocolate on a weekday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And I thought this was never, I thought this was the stupidest experiment ever. <laughs> and, and I can't say it was a miracle and I was instantaneously better and just got thin right away. I'd, I'd gotten up to about 280 pounds and I had triglycerides over a thousand and the doctors were telling me I was going to die. But I, I can't tell you that I immediately got all better. What happened, though, was it would wake me up at the moment of impulse. And I would suddenly realize that I wasn't powerless to make a different choice if I wanted to. It would give me those extra microseconds to consider what I was doing and remember why I wanted to set that rule in the first place. So, so it took me out of my lower brain and into my upper brain for at least a little bit. Now, sometimes I didn't make the right decision. Sometimes I decided I really wanted the chocolate anyway. But eventually, and I experimented with different rules because I figured I'm the one making the rules. No one's telling me what to eat. It's kind of silly that I am breaking them. Why don't I just make rules that I'll stick to? Eventually, I was soft enough on myself, and I came up with rules that I would stick to that worked. And I found that there were some rules I was sticking to 100%. And that sense of powerlessness went away. This, I'd been told in Overeaters Anonymous that I had a disease, that I was broken, that I was too weak to do this on my own. That, that all went away, and I found that I had the ability to decide the kind of person that I wanted to become around food, starting with these simple rules. I kept the journal for eight years about me versus my pig and the various rules that I would make. and you know. You could make a rule that completely excluded a food, like I'll never have chocolate again. You could make a rule that just supported mindfulness, like I always put my fork down to, between bites or I never eat in front of a screen. You could make a rule that, you know, supported intermittent fasting, like, like I, I, you know, I don't eat between 8 p.m. and 8, 8 a.m. I know you guys usually do longer windows. I, I like to start people with shorter windows of fasting. I find it's a little easier for binge eaters, and then I help them to expand those windows later. I'd actually like to ask you questions about that when, when we have time. So, you know, that's my story. I kept a journal for eight years, and then I was going to keep it private because I felt like, actually, I honestly felt embarrassed that this is how I got better, but I got better. I, you know, I lost probably about 80 pounds. I, my top weight on a scale was 257, but I stopped weighing myself. So I'm pretty sure I was about 280. I hover around 200 now. I got better. My triglycerides got better. My skin cleared up. I, Rosacea and psoriasis. I, 
I, I changed to a whole foods plant-based diet and that worked for me. My, my book is diet agnostic. I help people with all sorts of different food philosophies. Like I don't force mine on them, but personally I'm whole foods plant-based. So I experienced a lot of those benefits. And, and then when I was getting divorced, I was starting to consider it in 2015. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was running a coach training organization with my wife at the time. And we still had the marketing research business together, although she was mostly doing it. And I just didn't know what was going to happen. And I wanted to get out kind of quickly. And I'm getting divorced. And I was a minor partner in a publishing company. And the CEO said to me, hey, Glenn, we have to publish our own book. We need to publish a book and show that we really know what we're doing with marketing so we can attract better authors. And I said, well, I, I have this journal about me versus my inner pig, you see. <laughs> So he said, turn it into a book. So I gave it to him. I, it took about a month, the first draft. We didn't publish the first draft. And I sent it to him. It had a horrible name back then. But he read it and he loved it. He was 100 pounds overweight. He read it and he loved it. And he said, Glenn, don't answer pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And so he starts using the book. And he's progressed on a 100-pound weight loss journey. I think he's at 96 pounds now. It's like several years later. And so we published it and, you know, we're both in marketing. So we kind of sort of knew what to do, but we had no idea how it was going to take off and where now we're edging up on a million readers and people don't quite recognize my name, but they recognize me from videos sometimes. And they come up to me in a restaurant or a bookstore and they point at me and they go, pig guy, pig guy. So <laughs> that's my life now. And yeah, so now, now we've got a whole little, I've written a bunch more specialty books and we're trying to help a million people a year to stop binge eating. We've got a coaching network. We've got a coach training network and we're just getting started. We're just getting started. It's, it's very effective for, it's, it seems like it's very effective for people that nothing else has been effective for before. Finally found my purpose. I'm, I'm the big guy. That's what, that's what I do. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful 
for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I love it. That is such an incredible story. And I mean, it really is radical. I think you touched on so many things. I think just changing that paradigm shift of things you spoke about, like that you have to solve all of your emotional problems or that, you know, it's a disease, it's an addiction that you're born with. One thing I was going to ask you, but then you actually addressed was I was going to ask you if, even if it didn't matter in a way, the emotional aspect, like, could the pig still be activated by emotional issues, which you addressed, you know, about how, yes, but that doesn't change the fact that (laughs) doesn't change the solution in a way. Like I feel like people get so wrapped up and they think once they solve this, like you said, this emotional issue, like you found the story about what happened, you know, when you were young with the chocolate that your binging would stop and it didn't. And I feel like people, you know, experience that so often. So our experience as emotional leaders is that we get emotionally charged up. Sometimes it's with happiness. Most often it's with depression or anxiety. And we feel like we hear the squeal that says pig slop is the only thing that's going to solve it, whatever your personal pig slop is. And so maybe you had a rule that you're not going to eat after eight o'clock at night. And your pig, who we call Pigula in the evening because it whispers to you like Dracula, Pigula says that you have to eat. It's the only thing that's going to solve this. And then you go and you eat and you don't feel as anxious anymore temporarily. There are a few things that the pig says to reinforce that, and there's one critical fact that people aren't aware of that will help you break that habit. First of all, if you were to take an animal in a lab, and let's put aside whether this is ethical to do or not, but suppose there is an animal in a lab, and you look for the physiological signs of anxiety, heightened heartbeat, increased respiration, maybe some sweating or panting. And whenever you saw those increased signs of anxiety, you gave that animal some sugar water or some proven hyperpalatable treat, you know, the equivalent of a bag of chips or you know, pizza or whatever, you know, pick your poison is. What you would find is that that animal learned to present that set of physiological symptoms more frequently. The principles of operant conditioning increase that physiological response over time. So even though they're temporarily relieved because the nervous system has difficulty conducting the 
electrophysiological correlates of anxiety when the digestive system is overloaded, you're actually increasing the likelihood that that response occurs over time. And so eating to quell anxiety when your pig says that this is the only solution, well, it could be this is the whole problem. It could be that you're anxious in the first place because you've reinforced the anxiety with pig slop. And that's an eye-opener for a lot of people who don't recognize that. The second thing is that because the anxiety and most emotions will shut down upon overloading the digestive system, the pig's perception is that you're eating for comfort, that you, you you really need the comfort food and that you know, you deserve it and maybe you've been working hard all day or there's not really been anybody there for you. But what that ignores is that the pig slop also produces a temporary high. The things we tend to binge on are not steamed broccoli, although some people can, or, you know, raw leafy greens or a couple of pieces of fruit. The things we tend to binge on are the products of industry. We didn't have Doritos and Kit Kats and Pop-Tarts, and we didn't even have bread or pizza on the Savannah when we were evolving. There are recent inventions, and they're supersized stimuli that we don't have an evolutionary defense against. That's a nicer word. That's a nicer way of saying that they're drugs. Now, I'm not saying that you can't eat some Doritos or Kit Kats or Pop-Tarts, or I don't mean to single those companies out because there are all kinds of things that are delicious but bad for you. And I I would fight for your freedom to be able to do that if you want to. I think we fought wars in this country for our freedom. And I think that among those freedoms is the freedom to slowly kill yourself with food if you want to because you want the enjoyment from partying now. It's not the choice I would make, but I think in a free society, you have to support that. But I think that we're denying the high that they produce. And so if you struggle with emotional eating and you're willing to change your paradigm, instead of saying, I'm just comforting myself, I need comfort. It's kind of like your pig is crying and said, feed me, life is so hard, just feed me. If you're willing to challenge that paradigm and say, no, this is an addictive paradigm. This is, this is like an addict on the street that wants to get high with a needle. That makes the whole thing more dystonic to you and it makes you less likely to continue the behavior. So changing the paradigm from comfort to addiction, changing your understanding from thinking that food is actually comforting in the first place to realizing that it's aggravating the uncomfortable emotion gets people to wake up and start to consider other alternatives, start to sever the link between the emotion and the the behavior. The last thing is that rather than trying to solve the emotional problem, you know, it could take 10 years of therapy to solve the anxiety, the sources of anxiety and, you know, what anxiety are you carrying from your past and projecting into your present? That could take five or 10 years to really work through on the deepest level. But rather than waiting for that to happen, just build a fireplace around it, which involves creating these rules, listening very carefully for the part of your brain that suggests that you break these rules, and then disempowering them. When the pig says, it'd be just as easy to start tomorrow, you say, wait a minute, I know that by the principles of neuroplasticity that what fires together wires together. If I have a craving and I indulge it, it's going to get harder tomorrow. 
if I'm in a hole, I got to stop digging. The only time I can stop overeating is now. I always use the present moment to be healthy. So you, you start to identify those addictive thoughts, and then you disempower them. You figure out where the, where the lie is within them, and then you can start to ignore them. So that you, you build this really powerful fireplace around it, which has nothing to do with your history or your past trauma or your pain. And you sever the link between emotion and action. First of all, you're going to be much more likely to be able to work through the emotional issues in therapy at that point because you're going to not be so scared of your emotions because they're not going to lead to all this damage. Secondly, you're going to be a lot more present in the world because you're not going to be overloading yourself with food all the time. And third, I don't think there is another way to overcome the addiction. I, I think that when you leave the fireplace open, that even if you can put out the fire, there are always these little ashes running around. So I don't think it's safe to have a fire in a house without a fireplace. So that's what I had to say about emotional, emotional eating. Hi, friends. Do you want to find out instantly if you're burning fat or carbs? I'm not talking ketones. I'm talking fat or carbs. Because after all, yes, you can measure ketones, which are generated in the ketogenic state, but it doesn't really tell you that much. You could register low ketones, but that's just because you're creating a lot and burning them. Or you could register high ketones, meaning you're creating a lot and not burning them. Basically, it doesn't tell you that much about how much you're in a fat burning state. It also doesn't tell you if you're burning carbs. Because yep, you can actually measure if you're burning carbs. I'm talking about a technology they use in clinical trials when they evaluate whether or not humans are burning fat or carbs. This technology was not available to the general public until very recently. A company called Lumen created a device that measures carbon dioxide and oxygen levels in your breath to tell you if you're burning fat, carbs, or both, because as it turns out, you can be burning both. It's the coolest device ever. It's a small breath analyzer that comes with an app that they're always updating, and you can use it daily to see literally what you're burning at that moment. I find it so fascinating. For example, sometimes I'm deep into the fast, but I measure as burning carbs, which can be from things like stress or exercise. And sometimes I measure fat burning, yet I feel hungry, which is also pretty telling. You can also see how you respond to meals. How long does it take you to get back into fat burning after a carb meal? Or maybe you're on a low carb diet, but being on it too long, you realize you actually start burning carbs because your body's getting stressed. It's fascinating. If you really want to hack your fast, hack your food so that you can be appropriately burning fat when you want to be and burning carbs when you want to be, you've got to get Lumen. It's seriously the coolest device ever. I interviewed the founder if you'd like to learn all about the science. That episode is at melanieavalon.com slash carb fat burning. And if you'd like $50 off your own Lumen device, yes, $50 off, just go to melanieavalon.com slash Lumen and use the coupon code melanieavalon50. That's melanieavalon.com slash Lumen, L-U-M-E-N, with the coupon code melanieavalon50. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. I'm so glad you touched on all of that. And I had never really contemplated like the, the scientific aspect of how, you know, when your digestive system is so full and bloated, there's literally not resources. I, is, it, is that the case? There's not resources to go towards perpetuating anxiety, basically? Is that why? It's harder. It's harder. The, the body is harder to, has more trouble continuing to conduct the anxiety when, when that's the case. Yeah. It's not impossible. And very anxious people will tell you that they could binge and still feel anxious, but it, it's harder. 
That is so fascinating. I do have a random curveball question. You said we could do curveball questions. Yeah, yeah, please. Super curveball here. I was just thinking, have you read, is it Gretchen Rubin who wrote The Four Tendencies? Oh, a long time ago, I barely remember it. If you summarize them for me, it'll come back. It's the idea that people either fulfill inner versus outer expectations. So some people are like rules oriented. There's upholders. I forget what the four types are. There's like rebel, upholders, obligers, and one more. But it's basically the combination of whether or not you like to fulfill inner and or outer expectations. I was just wondering if there was a, you know, with having this plan, if it would work easier, like, cause some people identify as rebels, so they don't like fulfilling inner expectations or outer expectations. So I feel like that type of person might have more difficulty adopting the food plan and talking to the pig or, you know, interacting with the pig in this aspect because they don't want to have those inner rules even like they like breaking their own inner rules. But then maybe that's all the pig. <laughs> um, so, well, I guess if you haven't read the book, it's harder to have a, a discussion about it. But I was wondering, like, if does it matter, like, the type of person? Mm-hmm. Got a lot to say about that. First of all, there are several approaches to ending overeating. And one of them says you shouldn't have any rules at all, eat anything in, in moderation, because they'll say that any restriction whatsoever leads to a binge, even a mental restriction. That works for some people who are the types of rebels that you're talking about, where they'll rebel against their own rules. Here's what I think about that. I think that most of us, now this doesn't really matter except to understand why different approaches work in different ways. I think that most of us who struggle with food in a serious way, we're at some point in our life fed against our own best interest whether that's because of the way our parents raised us or because the opportunities available in college. But at some point, you know, we were probably told that we should eat this, but it turned out not to be so good for us. Maybe, maybe our parents fed us too much or too little. Who knows? Who knows? And as a result, we developed a type of rebellion against any rules whatsoever, even rules that we imposed on ourselves. And it's almost like we became two-year-olds, and anybody who's got kids, they know that when they're two, the answer to everything is no, right? (laughs) So, so no, I won't do this, no, I won't do that, because they're asserting their independence. And one way to deal with a two-year-old is to not tell them no, to let them say no as much as they want to and not tell them no. There's an approach to overeating which says, learn to be more mindful, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, be in touch with your emotions, learn to have them, not learn to be able to sit with them, sit through them. And I totally support all these goals and outcomes. They're, they're very valuable, psychologically positive things to do. But I also think that that's a developmental stage and you can move beyond that. And I also think that there's a limitation because that type of approach kind of forces you to keep a lot of things that aren't so good for you running through your body. And they would pipe in and say, people who are proponents of that approach would pop in and say, well, the very phrase not so good for you is wrong. There's no such thing as a good food or a bad food. But having worked in the industries that I worked in and seeing, for example, that it's legal to put flavored cardboard in our food, I I think at some point we all have to stand up and say, there are things I will eat and things I won't eat. And 
you know, we all have those types of rules anyway. We all, we're actually all rule makers. Character is the habitual response to temptation. And if you look at other situations in life, you know, a lot of these people who say they are just totally opposed to any kind of rules, well, if I say to them, what if you walk into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress didn't see her tip? And she says, I'll be right back. I just have to get your menu. And there's no video camera and there's nobody up front. Nobody would see you take it. Would you take that $20 bill? Almost everybody says I'd never do that. And I'd say, why? And they'll say, because I'm not a thief. And I'd say, well, you wouldn't get caught. This I know, but I'm not a thief. That waitress worked hard for her money and she deserves it. And I'll say, so you've got an unwritten rule that you always abide by, which is that I never take other people's money. And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, if you've got a rule for that, why wouldn't you make a rule about something that would add to your life in another way? You've decided you're not a thief. You got there by recognizing that you have to follow a rule to do that, even if nobody would see you, even if you get in no trouble whatsoever. Why can't you do that for other things? And the truth is, I think that people do. They just don't articulate it. I think that, you know, there, there are things that people won't eat even when they are following these approaches. And so I, I believe that the ultimate in eating healthy is to build rules that support your character to be who you want to be with regards to food in the world. Like, I've become a person who doesn't eat chocolate. People ask me if I'm white-knuckling the fact that I'll never have chocolate again. I don't even have a rule that says that anymore. According to my food plan, I could have it if I wanted to. But I had a rule for several years. I fought every last pig squeal. Over time, I lost the physical addiction. I figured out what I was authentically craving when I needed that, which was usually some type of leafy green and bananas. And... You know, after I'd gone through that long enough, the addiction left me and I just became a person who doesn't eat chocolate. That's in my character now. Chocolate looks like a big bag of chemicals. I don't even want a bite. I just don't want it. And I, I think that that's the ultimate freedom. Is it difficult for a period of time sometimes for people who feel like they're not rules-based people to get to that point, to follow rules for a while and get to the point it is. What I tell you is that in this system, the rules you create are very autonomous. Like, I, I'm not going to tell you what to eat. I work with people who eat all sorts of things that I wouldn't have. And it's, it's very autonomous in that you choose it for yourself. And that way, your pig has less to rebel against because it can't say that, well, this diet doctor has, you know, his whole, whole diet doesn't work. We're going to have to find another one. Let's binge in the meantime. Also that we're using the word never. When I say I'll never have chocolate again, I'm setting it up to draw a very clear line around the bullseye so that I can aim with perfection. But I, I, like an Olympic archer, I can become one with the bullseye and I can know where the bullseye begins and ends. And I know not only whether I hit it or not, but by how much I missed it in what direction so I can make adjustments. So I commit with perfection. But if I miss, I forgive myself with dignity. I don't shoot all the rest of the arrows up into the air and say, oh, screw it, I'm just a pathetic archer. I use the information to learn from it, and I aim at the, the target again. And most people are frightened of the word never because they think they're going to box themselves into something that 
they're going to feel awful about if they don't hit, and that they can't change, that they can't move the target if they want to. But we're using the word never in a funky way. It's kind of the same way that you talk to a two-year-old. When my niece was two years old, I said, you can't ever, ever cross the street without holding my hands. Never, ever, 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 ever. But we all know that, you know, five years from then, I was going to teach her how to do it, right? The point was that at her level of maturity, I had to present her this rule as if it were set in stone, because I didn't even want her thinking or having the image of darting into the middle of the street without, without holding my hand. It's too dangerous. That's what it's like with our pigs with food. The reptilian brain is a creature of impulse. It's not a creature that has the maturity to think through what's best for you. And it's supercharged by the concentrated foods that are available today. And so we have to treat it like a two-year-old. Otherwise, it just runs rampant. So we present our plans to our pigs as if they're set in stone. But with wisdom and experience, we can evolve our plans. I always say you should... If you want to change your plan, sit down and write out exactly what you want to change. XYZ rule is going to change to ABC rule. And write down exactly why you want to change it, what it's going to do for you. Sit with that and breathe for a little bit. Let it sit for at least 24 hours before you let it become law. And save a copy of the old plan just in case it doesn't work so you can go back to what was working before. I think that this program does appeal more naturally to rules-based people, but I would suggest that people don't rule it out if you're a non-rules-based person, because I think it has more to offer than the everything in moderation approach. My personal opinion. No, I love that so much. And I mean, I personally am a rules-oriented person, both inner and and outer. (laughs) Got to follow all the rules all the time. So one of the things I've experienced backlash of is if I do have rules and I have a plan there's this, you know, societal pressure that comes in that's like you you talked about. It's like, oh, you're being, you know, too strict, you know, you need to have moderation, you need to lighten up, you know, that's like not healthy when like emotionally healthy. And like I, you talk about in the book, like the difference between what is deprivation and this reframe of that idea about what are you depriving yourself from by engaging in things that don't serve you. So I think, you know, having these rules that serve you, that keep everything the way you like to exist in the world, I personally love subscribing to. So yeah, I love your perspective on that. So for listeners, you have to get this book, listeners. It's funny. It's hysterical. (laughs) And it's easy. I personally love the, I was telling you, Glenn, the audiobook version, the narrator, he's just incredible. The new narrator is me. I re-recorded it in my own voice, but you're right. The old narrator was pretty funny. Oh, so I'll have to listen to you read it. Yay. This is exciting. I'm a lot funnier in writing than I am in person. I tend to be a little more serious in person. Everybody tells me the book is hysterical. It is. It's, I mean, it's so funny. You just nailed it. I think because you're talking about all these excuses that the quote pig comes up with. And in the book, you call them pig squeals and all of these potential things that your inner pig might tell you as, you know, a reason to binge, reason to go off of your food plan. First of all, you can just really tell that you've been there and that you understand because so many things just are just so, so true. Like one of my favorites is like, you know, we can't start our food plan until we have all the information. So we have to finish the book so we can just keep binging until we finish the book and (laughs) things like that. But speaking to that, one of the things you talk about is the connection between the parts of the brain and 
how this lizard reptilian part of our brain, you know, what we're calling the pig, that how it uses language, like it, how it doesn't have any power over us really, and how it uses language to talk to us because that's the only thing it can do. Like it can't actually, you talk about this in the book, like your inner pig can't make you drive to the grocery store, get the food, pay for it, drive back, put it in your mouth, eat it. Like it can't do that. All it can do is tell you reasons to and encourage you along the way to keep doing it. Yes, you're superior. So to that point, because I think one of the things people really struggle with is how do they, because you feel like it's you. Like you feel like I'm the one wanting this. I'm the one coming up with this excuse. I'm the one thinking this. So how can listeners identify in their head what is what you would call pig squeal and what is the pig versus what is them? Yeah, it's a really good question. First of all, you have to accept that this is a trick of mind. I, I don't really think there's a pig inside me. I, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't, I don't really think there's a, there's a pig in, inside of me. I, I know that this is a construct that I'm using, but it's a very clean pristine concept that separates your thoughts from your constructive versus destructive thoughts. So you have to buy into that. You're allowed to organize your thoughts any way you want to. And that by organizing your thoughts with a very clear line between constructive and destructive with regards to food behavior, that you're empowering yourself to identify with the constructive thoughts and make that more and more a part of your character and purge the destructive thoughts into this fictitious entity we call the pig. Now, how do you do that? You make sure that the line that you're drawing is 100% clear with no ambiguity. So a really easy line to illustrate this with is I will never eat chocolate again. If I say I will never eat chocolate again, then what is it that the pig could say that will confuse me? If we define pig squeal, as any thought, feeling, impulse, or image, which suggests that I will ever break that rule ever again between now and the time that I die. If any thought, feeling, image, or impulse that says I'm ever going to have chocolate, even one bite, lick, taste, or swallow, what is it that the pig can't say that the pig would say that I couldn't recognize? So the inability to hear the pig, the confusion between what's the pig and what's me, is an artifact of not having a clear enough rule that draws the line because of the definition of pig squeal. See, people are used to living in a world where they're saying, eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full, right? And so then they say, well, I don't really know. I don't know if that's me or that's the pig. You know, am I full or am I not full? Am I hungry or am I not hungry? And the pig will say, oh, you're hungry, baby. Believe me, you're hungry. You're not full yet. Eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full is not a never binge again rule that can be enforced with the pristine clarity we're talking about. It's a guideline. It's a good idea. Guidelines are like North Stars that you try to navigate towards, but you can never be 100% on course. A guideline would be, I avoid chocolate 90% of the time. I eat it 10% of the time. Well, how do you know which is the 90% and which is the 10%? If you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, is that part of the 90%? Or is that part of the 10%? Then you're constantly having to make decisions with where down your willpower. It just doesn't work. 
even though it's a good idea, it's a good guideline. So you use guidelines for things where you can't use rules, like eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. I want to say a little more about that one in particular in a minute. But you use rules for things that are real trouble spots, like I will never have chocolate again, or I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again. Those are both rules because 10 people would agree whether I follow them or not. And when you have a really clear rule, then you know that it's a pig because the acid test is, does this encourage me even in the slightest to break the rule? And that's the pig. So the confusion between the pig and yourself has to do with the confusion about the rule. And the confusion about the rule usually has to do with the fact that people are creating guidelines and not rules and they don't know it. So coming up with the rule though, because one thing you talk about is don't rationalize, don't argue with the pig, don't try to debate it. What if the person created a unsustainable food plan and so from a health perspective? And so is it possible that the voice that's telling them to break it is actually because they need some sort of, you know, nutrient or something? Yes. You you can't make rules that go against your biology. You can't say, I will never pee again, because your your bladder will force you to do otherwise eventually, right? You can't, like, I worked with a woman who's insisting on going on a 500 calorie a day restriction plan. And I told her that I've never been successful with people like that for more than a couple of months. They always bounce back the other way because you're not getting, like, it's just impossible for her to get the nutrition she needs in 500 calories. It's very difficult to refute hunger. The ultimate goal is to be able to ignore the pick. So in the book, I say, if it's enough to know that a squeal is coming from the pig, because you know that by definition, the pig is up to no good. All it ever wants is to get you to break the rule. And you decided using your best thinking that your rule is in your best interest. Now you do have to evaluate the rule. I ask people to consult with a nutritionist or at least go to chronometer or my fitness pal or something and evaluate whether it's possible to get a full nutritional complement and get enough calories to sustain you at a, maybe a weight loss pace of one pound a week or something like that. I don't, I don't like when people lose more than two pounds a week. I find they always bounce back. So I, I like them to evaluate their whole plan before they adopt it to be sure that it's nutritionally and calorically sufficient to sustain them in the long run. I, I don't want them getting onto the feast and famine roller coaster because eating too little is as bad as eating too much in terms of binge eating. So you do have to make sure that your authentic bodily needs are met or none of this is going to work. It's so interesting because, you know, with my background and audience with intermittent fasting and everything, I mean, it, it aligns very well in a way with this whole construct and concept because intermittent fasting in a way is, you know, having this plan and having a never and an always like I will never eat maybe between these times or I always eat between these times. And that works so well for so many people, I think, because of having the bright lines and because of all of that. And I think though a lot of people struggle still, like they, you know, they'll have a window, but then they just feel like they can't get control of their cravings or all of these things. And I wonder how often it is because of the food plan that they've, from what they're eating perspective in their window is not, you know, suiting their body long-term. So I feel like it can be hard for people to figure out, you know, where the issue might lie. I'd like to have a discussion with you about this and maybe you could educate me more too. What I find, first of all, I thoroughly believe in and support all of the medical benefits for intermittent fasting. 
You know, I think that all types of restorative processes engage when we're not eating. I think that you can actually train the brain not to be eating all the time when you're uh, not to be thinking about food all the time when you have longer windows. What I find on an empirical, practical basis is that when people start with a short window of time where they can eat, when binge eaters start, then when they break, they tend to do worse. Because I think the brain perceives, my, my, my hypothesis about binge eating is that it's a, it's a result of a evolutionary feast or famine survival mechanism that says when food is unavailable for significant periods of time, that as soon as it's available, we have to hoard it. I think that's why being full can be a trigger to eat too much because you know, if you think about maybe there was a famine and then all of a sudden there was a harvest and there's all this food available, people probably needed to eat as much as they could when they could get it. And so I've had the experience that it's a little mini recapitulation of that feast and famine mechanism. And for the first four to six months when I'm working with people who want to do intermittent fasting, which I really support, again, I find that if they make their window shorter than 12 hours, it's harder. And I'm just wondering if, is there anything you could tell me that would make it easier for people who wanted to do that? Or is there anything that you've observed with binge eaters in particular that tends to work with intermittent fasting? You're the first person that I'm having an intelligent conversation about this with, so I would love to know what you thought. I have so many thoughts about this. Just because, like you said, we, we see you know all of these health benefits with fasting, but I do wonder in a way if it is, well, I feel like in a way it is what you just said, that it's kind of recreating this feast-famine cycle. And I've often wondered if the reason it does, and this, I, I mean, saying this sounds kind of controversial, but maybe the reason it does work really well for people with binge eating problems is because it, in a way, allows them to hold on to this binge eating tendency or pattern. It's like having their cake and eating it too, because they still get to eat at night all they want. So they get to engage in that habit, that activity and the experience from that. And then fasting during the day. And so in a way, and I'm being really hesitant saying this because- Makes up for it. Makes up for it and it, it continues the cycle. Yeah. Because I know people will also, you know, like use exercise, for example. So, you know, they'll eat a lot and then they'll, you know, try to exercise it off or something. This is something I think about a lot, actually. It's like if a person is, let's say they're identified as like a binge eater and they're doing intermittent fasting and they find a window- that's a small window that works for them and it allows them to eat quote all they want in this window and then be functional during the day, maybe even be losing weight, seeing improved health. Is there a problem if it's still in a way a, because we can have two scenarios. We could have that scenario where they're actually getting healthier. It's working for them. It works in their life, but maybe they still kind of engage in it. And like, it's maybe it's in a way, it's still their binge eating tendency versus there might be another person who's a quote binge eater who's doing this and, it, and it's not working for them. So like you said, you know, especially if they're still hungry or they never feel full. And then if they do, you know, quote, fall off the way, then I find that really interesting what you said about that people who have these tendencies, once they start fasting, you know, if they fall off actually 
you know, gets way worse. I feel like I'm talking in circles, but that, that's something I think about actually a lot is like, is this in a way a control type of binge eating that actually though supports the health of the body? And so is there something quote wrong with that? I mean, I don't know that you and I are, are to judge, right? The person needs to judge for themselves. For me, the critical component would be, I mean, for, first of all, whether it was supporting the health of the body. And if it is, then I don't think anybody can criticize it. But secondly, what's happening with the food obsession? One of the biggest problems that binge eaters are bothered by is the content, constant mental obsession with food. Like, like when I was sitting with suicidal patients and thinking about the deli, I wasn't really living my life. I wasn't being as valuable and productive as I could be or soulful as I could be because I was constantly thinking about food. And so if having that window helps them to not think about food during the day, so they can just get what they want in the evening, you know, I don't, I don't know it. I mean, I always tell people, you can eat whatever you want to if you can live with the consequences. And so if you can live with these consequences and you don't think it would be better to try it another way, then I'm okay with that. Well, yeah, also to that point, so because we're a big, big pro- pro- proponent of in our approach to fasting, calling it, quote, clean fasting. So while fasting, only water, black coffee, nothing like artificially sweetened because we found that all of these things kind of trigger that that hunger still because what you just said, you know, the worst thing is the constant obsession with feeling hungry and, you know, just not being able to engage in your everyday life because of that. And I think so many people with fasting find freedom from that finally. And it's just like such a beautiful moment. But a lot of people, if you're working with clients who do want to do fasting, I don't know how much you talk about like the window they're picking or the approach they're picking. You could try recommending, because the thing we recommend to people if they're, if they're wanting, especially even if they're wanting to do a smaller window, that's not working for them is really recommend cutting out or just doing water or black coffee. Super, really, really important. And then we really suggest that what is eaten in the window is, you know, nutritionally sound. Well, that sounds sane and wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) If people are still hungry while fasting and, you know, experiencing these, especially inclinations towards binging, something's not working because the fasted state should be a state where you're entering into fat burning, you know, all of the hormones should be adjusting to address hunger. So if if it's not, I think there's a lot of stuff to, you know, that can be tweaks. And we're all about tweaking, like trying different windows, trying different food. You know, we're, we're all open. I love the word diagnostic, like you said. Do you have a coaching network also? Like if I had a client who needed... We don't. We just have our podcast and we accept lots of listener questions. But I can give you our email. You could tell your clients to say that you referred them and we'll make sure because we get a ton of questions. But if they come from you, we'll make sure that if we don't address it on the podcast, that we'll definitely answer it. Melanie, I would like that. I would like to be able to have you as a resource like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, please. I'll give you the information. For listeners who are listening, you can email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and submit questions there. But yeah, definitely for your clients, tell them to tell us that you referred them and we will help them. What a great domain name. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. So actually, I do have kind of a foundational question that we haven't really talked about. Defining binging, because there are all these words and you know, there's binging, food addiction, emotional eating, compulsive eating. Are they all the same thing? 
I'm going to skirt the question for a moment, then I'll give you a more direct answer. I think the question, do I have a problem or not? Am I a binge eater or not? You know, have I crossed the line or not? I think it's a squeal in and of itself because this approach works to help people to stop overeating beyond their own best judgment. And I can't imagine who would want to overeat beyond their own best judgment. And this approach is not about defining a disease state or disordered state. This approach assumes that we're not diseased, but we're people with healthy appetites that have been corrupted by industry. And so it's kind of separate and apart from the DSM-5 definition of binge eating. That said, if you really want to know, you could look us up, look up the DSM-5 definition of binge eating. What you'd find is that it has to do with the frequency of eating beyond your own comfort level, the severity of like emotional disgust or self-loathing that goes along with it, and a variety of other factors that wouldn't surprise you. You know, and that it's caused sustained discomfort or weight gain, those type of things. So if you want to know, have you crossed the line to be formally diagnosed as a binge eater? I mean, my, my thing is, well, whoop do you do? What if you haven't? If you haven't, does that mean you're going to keep on eating stuff that makes, that you know is bad for your body and you wish you weren't eating? Like, let's take the stigma out of it. Let's not call you a binge eater or not a binge eater. And let's just say, how do we take charge of our healthy survival drive and redirect it towards where it needs to be? And that's my opinion about, about that line. But there is a clear line if you really want to look it up. That's the thing. You know, the title of the book is Never Binge Again. And like I said, we get so many questions. And I get questions in my Facebook groups and about not just, quote, binging, but emotional eating, food problems, especially with fasting, trying to find the thing that works for them. And I'm like, I always have to say, I'm not saying you're a binge eater because there's you know so much stigma around that. I know, I know. And I'm like, I'm not saying you're a binge eater, but please just read this book. <laughs> please. I probably should have named it Never Overeat Again, which would have been more appealing to a broader audience. I guess because I was clearly a binge eater in the stigmatized group, I most identified with that. I mean, I wasn't really thinking like a marketer when I, when I named it. Well, it still works. <laughs> you have like almost 5,000 reviews on Amazon for the first one. Oh, it's ridiculously popular. It's so surprising. It's Incredible. Yeah. I remember when I first saw it, I was reading the reviews and so many people are just like saying how that, you know, they tried everything like therapy and all these different things. And then, I mean, I know you're being clicked and it's just that much of a radical paradigm shift. It's a different kind of book. It's not the book you'd expect a compassionate, soft-spoken psychologist to write. <laughs> it's, it's honestly wonderful. Thank you. One thing I love that you, you talk about how simple it is, like to never binge again you just never binge again. <laughs> like that's the answer. And that can seem so simple and impossible, but in a way it's true. And you talk about it a lot about how, how can you never binge again if you do binge again? But to that point, you do discuss the idea of quote failure. And if, you know, what happens if you slip up or fall off your food plan and how the pig is actually excited by that idea of failure. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, the whole idea of, A, how can you never binge again if you might binge again? <laughs> and B, if you do binge again, why does the pig actually, you know, why is it excited by the idea of that? And what can we do if we do binge again after never binging again? I'll start with a little joke, which would say, the book wouldn't be very valuable if I named it binge sometimes. 
right? <laughs> what you want to understand is that perfectionism is a part of the binge mentality, but you don't want to stop using it. You just want to use it in a human way rather than the pig's way. Because perfectionism is also a part of a winning mentality. You know, if you'd go to the 12-step groups, you'll hear them say progress, not perfection. But the truth is, when it comes to toxic pleasure, if you're setting out to follow a rule or hit a target, progress, not perfection means I'll try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. And that's not a very strong commitment tool. If you get married, you don't say to your fiance, you know, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to sleep with any other women, but there are a lot of attractive people out there. I'm just being honest. You want me to be honest. Progress, not perfection, right? There are some commitments that we expect ourselves to make with perfection. You know, but there, there are situations where people got divorced because there was an affair or something like that, and they work things through and they decide to get remarried. And we, we take that remarriage commitment seriously. So this is not without analogies in our everyday life. What winners do in the course of winning, you talk to Lance Armstrong, or you talk to you know, a cyclist, or you talk to an Olympic archer, or you talk to a mountain climber, is they visualize the victory and they become one with it. And they commit with perfection to achieving that victory. So the perfectionism as a commitment tool is actually a winner's tool. Progress, not perfection as a commitment tool, is a loser's tool because I'll try for a little while until I don't feel like that anymore. After you make a mistake, perfectionism is a loser's tool. If you accidentally touch a hot stove, if you were to then let the pig tell you, oh, you're just a pathetic hot stove toucher, you might as well put your whole hand down on the stove, that would be a bad idea, right? What you want to do when you touch a hot stove is figure out, why did I touch the hot stove? Where was it that I missed it? How am I going to avoid touching that in the future? How do I have to adjust my aim? What other adjustments do I have to make so that never happens again? And then you commit to never touching the hot stove again. And it's not like you hadn't committed to never touching a hot stove before. You committed to never touching it. I mean, Melanie, do you plan on touching a hot stove ever again for the rest of your life? You're never going to do it. It's that, that's your plan is to never touch a hot stove again. Well, if you accidentally touched one, then the best plan is still to never touch it again, not to touch it sometimes. It's a paradox where you have to entertain perfectionism and anti-perfectionism at the same time. And you use perfectionism when you're committing, but you forgive yourself with dignity when you touch the hot stove. You want the pain. You don't want to just ignore the pain. You know, there are kids in this world that are born with a disorder that prevents them from feeling pain, and they, they don't live very long because they run into sharp things. We need the pain as a signal that there's something wrong that we actually touch the hot stove. But if you, hot, if you touch the hot stove, you got to do an analysis and make adjustments. So you become anti-perfectionistic after a mistake and you say, I made a mistake. It was painful. How do I fix it? And you take it seriously. You consider that your food rules are sacred because you come up with them at a time when you're of sound mind and body and really thinking things through. So you always take it seriously and you take the time to analyze what went wrong and make adjustments, but then you commit with perfection again. So I call it committing with perfection and forgiving yourself with dignity. The pig would like you to just kind of sort of try when you're setting out towards a goal. And then when you miss the goal, what's really interesting is it flips on you again 
and it says, if you're not perfect, you're nothing, you're pathetic. There's no way that you can ever do this. You might as well just keep binging. So it's not that the pig doesn't use perfectionism. It just uses it in the opposite way. So commit with perfection and forgive yourself with, with dignity. That's why I describe it. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines, one of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair, and it is depleted 
contributed by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels, and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. It made me think of 
actually going back to what we were talking about with intermittent fasting, so interesting to discuss in the context of this because, you know, with the whole rules and all of that stuff. So you find with your clients that people who begin doing intermittent fasting that are binge eaters, that if they fall off, quote, the wagon, like it's worse than before they were intermittent fasting? I'd say that it's worse than people who aren't doing intermittent fasting in in my practice. You know what I wonder if that is, and it kind of ties in on to what we were just talking about with you know failure and falling off the wagon, because I hadn't thought about this before. I wonder if, so let's say people are struggling with overeating and binge tendencies, and they jump into fasting and having windows. You know, if they start with a, a longer window and then slowly shorten it, I think that can probably work. Or if they you know, jump straight into a short window, maybe that can work. But then if I wonder if in being in that short window, if they start having like all the eating attached to this time, I wonder then if it's harder to lengthen that eating window again, because now maybe they associate the eating window with, you know, eating, eating, eating. Because I think one thing that we, we hear from listeners is they'll say that they, you know, started fasting and it was like so incredible and so great. But then especially with the whole COVID thing and quarantine, a lot of people found themselves, you know, wanting their stress and soothe their anxiety by eating. (laughs) So they would try to, you know, lengthen their window and eat and, you know, have a longer eating window. And I think people who had been fasting in shorter windows, having the longer window actually, because they associate this eating time with eating a lot and eating, having, it, it was really, really hard, I think, for a lot of people to quote, intuitively eat in a longer window when they've been doing fasting in a smaller window. Sorry, that was like a tangent, but it speaks to what you were talking about earlier about how our brain has, you know, neuroplastic has patterns. And if we associate certain things with, you know, cues and they self-perpetuate itself, like, cause I think fasting has such a wonderful place. And I think it's a really great food plan in a way for the, t- the timing of things. But I, I think it does need to be done very carefully. What I'm finding just experimentally with the people in my practice is that, and we have a lot of people, by the way, that, that do that. We try to start them with 12 hours We don't give any nutritional advice, I should say, because we're not nutritionists or doctors or anything like that. But we tell people that we find that people that work with this method tend to do better starting with a 12-hour window and then reducing it gradually, reducing the window that, uh, lengthening the window that you don't eat, reducing the window that you do eat. I think that's great. And what I'm thinking about is kind of like when you're on the flip side of that, if you're struggling and you have a smaller window, I think it's hard to get out of that if you want to lengthen your window. Like for me personally, I, because I've been doing intermittent fasting for about a decade, I jumped into like a one meal a day, eating just at night. It was like radically easy actually. And I've been doing it consistently for a decade. When I started to try to lengthen my window to play around with having a longer window, especially because I read all the stuff about circadian rhythm and maybe it's better to eat earlier and all of these things, I could not, I haven't still been able to lengthen my window without, I mean, I don't know if I can or not, but I feel like I can't go back. You do best on one meal a day. Mm-hmm. Like before I started fasting, I think, say I was still on my normal eating throughout the day. I could have easily, well, easily, but it wouldn't have been that hard for me to have a longer window. Like I could have at that time, probably done like 12 and 12 and then, you know, 16, eight. But now that I've been so long doing one meal, because I often think maybe I should have a longer window and try more intuitive eating. It's really, really hard. It's like, 
once I start eating now, I just, it's my eating time. And actually, that's something I want to talk about is the difference in the pig squeal between, because I've tried to apply this. I find this method so brilliant. I think it's might be easier for some people like to hear the pig squeal and say no to it before they've started a binge or gone off plan. Is there a different approach for, or a different way you engage with the pig before you've broken the rule versus once you start? Because I I think that's so much harder. (laughs) Well, it's hard to stop a locomotive. The fat and the sugar and the salt and the starch and the excitotoxins are designed to make you want more and your like your biological drives are pointed in the wrong direction at that point. I can tell you that it can be done. There are a couple of techniques, a couple or two or three things you can do. First of all, recognize that it's better to have five cupcakes than 15. And a 5,000 calorie binge is better than a 15,000 calorie binge. Every bite counts, every last one. You're going to have to process all the food that goes into your body. But by the way, none of this works if you purge. Like not purging is the first rule of never binge again. You, we can't help people if they're, if they're purging. I, I was never, this is, this is an aside, I was never bulimic myself. You could say I was an exercise bulimic, but I could never purge. I could never put my finger down my throat. And so I didn't really have to develop the techniques for never purging again. So I always make a disclaimer, even though a lot of people tell me that they stop binging using my book, I say, well, it's not really intended for that. And, you know, purging can be very serious, so I, I don't want to mislead people in any way, shape, or form like that. But there's a big difference between a 5,000-calorie and a 15,000-calorie binge. There's a big difference between, you know, binging for a week and binging for a day. And you want to start noticing those fine gradations of success. You want to start collecting evidence of success. So it always helps to take a deep breath and let it out. Because binge mentality is an emergency mentality. It says that we need this food now or we're going to die. It's really on that level of perception. You're operating in your lizard brain. The next thing is if you have a pen and paper with you or a smartphone with you and you write down the next thing that you're craving, just write. Write where you would get it, write what you would have, write why your pig is telling you to do it. Just write. Writing is an upper brain activity. Binging is a lower brain activity. Once you start to write, you might be able to refute it. So that's another way you can do it. Another thing is that you can repoint your biological drive. So I heard Jack Trimpey talk about this while he was working with a smoker. And he said that the biological error in smoking is that smoking is like oxygen or nicotine is like oxygen. And the lungs believe that they need it to survive in the same way that they believe they need oxygen. And so if a smoker has a really big craving or has had a cigarette and wants another one, if they go out into the cool, fresh air and take a very deep breath and sigh it out three times, they're not going to feel the same level of craving. They're going to feel like they've, you're kind of switching nervous systems. You're switching from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system the one that revs you up and the one that cools you down. And the equivalent of that with food, I think, is leafy green vegetables. Now, there are some medical conditions which prevent people from being able to eat that. So if you have one, or I guess I should say check with your doctor, be sure that that this intervention is okay. 
But so many people have told me that if in the middle of a binge, they pause and they say, okay, well, I'll order another pizza in a moment, but right now I'm just going to throw a half pound of leafy green vegetables in the blender. I'm not making a salad. I'm not putting dressing on it. Just a half pound of tender leafy greens, not, not like kale or things that are hard to digest, but like, you know, lettuce or spinach or something like that. Throw it in the blender and drink it down quick like it's medicine. That suddenly the survival drive gets a jolt and says, well, this is what I'm supposed to be having. This is what I need. And it starts to yank it away, to pry it away from the fat and the salt and the sugar and cytotoxins that industry is telling your survival drive it needs instead. You can do that. Then there's also the STFUPIG technique, where the pig is saying it needs another pizza or it needs another chocolate bar or, you know, just one more this or that and we'll be done. When you suddenly wake up and realize that's happening and you, you can do this for real if you're not in public, you put both middle fingers up in the air and you say, say the actual words, don't, don't abbreviate it, say STFU pig, get back in your cage. It's difficult to access your logical brain during a binge, but you can, you can access your primitive aggressive brain and go, you know, shut the F up, pig. And you put your middle fingers in the air. Please don't do this in a store and tell people you're a never been again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've had people do that. <laughs> but, and what you're doing is you're asserting superiority. When you're binging, you've left society, you've entered the animal kingdom. You have, to, you have to act like the superior animal to get, get your life back. Those are the ways that we're aware of so far. We're, we're always looking. Yeah. I love one thing you talk about in the book is you provide like binge recovery tools or things to deal with cravings, but you always have this caveat about how the pig is excited at the idea of these because it means, well, you know, if we binge, we've got recovery tools or, you know, it's so true. Yes, that, that, that's a squeal in and of itself. You have to say STFU pig, we're never going to binge again. Even though you know there's a part of you that might, you have to learn to purge that from your identity. Just so you know, Melanie, I've, I've made mistakes over the years. I've not kept every food rule perfectly for the 10 years that I've done this. What, what has 100% been the case is that I never feel powerless. I never feel out of control. If I make a mistake, it's a mistake, and I get right back on. And the mistakes got fewer and further in between. And there are some things I just never did again. I never had chocolate again. Once I got the right rule and I, I got all the squeals that I never had chocolate again or you know, flour and sugar, it's, there are a lot of things that you just never do. And there's some rules that stick 100% and some rules don't. But you get more and more powerful. You, you have more and more free will. You, make, you develop more and more of a muscle. And I'm thin and healthy and I've healed so many things and it gets better all the time. It's so incredible and so empowering. And I think this was something I wanted to touch on that you said earlier was you were talking about how, you know, with a lot of your clients that almost the one of the worst things is the anxiety, not even the actual binging, but just the feeling of powerlessness. Like, what if I binge? You know, what, just like this feeling of like this terrible thing that might happen and that you can't stop it. So your book is just so, so empowering for that. The first thing you say when you start to feel like I'm afraid that I might binge you translate that to pig language and you say, the pig really, really, really wants to binge, but I never do. And I never will again. Recognizing the agency 
recognizing that you're in control and converting that fear into a pig's wish starts to open up room for you to pull a lever that stops it. One thing I was actually thinking about last night was like if somebody has maybe not the desire to binge, but you know, other, and you talk about in the book about applying this to other addictions or other or quote addictions or other things in our life. But I was thinking I could even maybe apply it to like anxiety or worry. And maybe I could give all of my anxious thoughts or all my worry thoughts a name. I was thinking I could call them like the salamander and I could just like, Oh, I love that. I have like an anx- an anxiety or a worry. I was creating this whole idea in my head last night. I was like, that could be the salamander. And instead I could, you know, have the other animal that I like to listen to. That's one of like power and love. And so don't listen to the salamander. I was thinking I could have like a unicorn. What we want to do in that case, we need a more specific definition of an anxious thought. Want to give me an example of an anxious thought? What if I get broken into again? Well, that was more specific, but my, my ongoing anxiety is really that I've been having some health issues and I just don't know if it's going to change. And so I get this anxiety surrounding like, what if this doesn't improve or what if this doesn't get better? And it's kind of just like a perpetual voice. And I realize I don't need to like be thinking that <laughs> um, all the time. It also could apply to people right now with like COVID and quarantine. Like, what if this doesn't change? What if the, you know, just thinking about it. Can I coach you for just a moment or would you prefer not to do that publicly? Please do. So what would you think about saying that you're going to do whatever it takes to heal these health issues and they're going to get better and that any thought that's more likely to suggest that they won't get better than that they will get better is your salamander. Would you be willing to do that? Okay. So this is so interesting because ironically, that's my, in a way, that's my foundational mindset. Like when, you know, you take like the intake forms and it's like you list, you know, your sense of hope or your sense of, you know, all of these things. The reason I have this podcast, the biohacking podcast is because I'm just like on a relentless search for answers. So I've always been like, I'm going to figure out what's going wrong and I'm going to take steps to fix it. And we're going to, you know, find what works. I guess the anxiety that comes in for me is that I feel like because there must be an answer out there, and because I haven't, quote, found it or practiced it yet, then I must be the problem. Like, because I haven't been able to completely resolve everything, it must be something I'm doing wrong. Because I think the answer is out there, and I'm, quote, going to find it. So the anxiety is around, oh, like, clearly you're doing something wrong. <laughs> you're talking to all these experts and finding all this stuff out. So your, your salamander says that you're incapable of finding the answer because you're you're diseased or there's something wrong with your thinking. My actions probably, I think. Like, it's like, I must not be enacting the correct things. Can I tell you a personal story? Oh, please. I had incapacitating migraines for about eight years to the point that I almost couldn't work. And turned out in the end, it was a combination of Lyme disease and a car accident that I'd had But there were so many experts. I mean, I must have talked to 40 experts. And I was just relentless about trying to figure out what the answer was. And I don't have migraines anymore because I was relentless and I just kept on asking. And I faced that salamander myself. And sometimes there there are things that, you know, like for me, it was a unique combination. It wasn't just one thing. And so it masqueraded as a lot of other things. They thought it was a gluten intolerance. They thought it had to do with nitroglycerides. They, there were so many different 
false, we thought it was orthotics, so many different false roads. But by being relentless and telling myself that I am someone who's going to do whatever it takes to solve this, no matter what. And then I didn't quite have the never binging and philosophy down. Then it was kind of at the same time I was developing it, but starting to purge all of the thoughts that suggested that I couldn't solve it or it was hopeless or it was pathetic. That's how I solved it. And I, the only time I ever get a migraine anymore is if I take a long plane trip, but otherwise it's totally solved. So I just want you to know, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think sometimes there are unique causes. I don't know what you're suffering with and we didn't do an inventory or anything like that, but I just wanted you to know that. No, thank you so much for sharing that. I've had the, the Lyme diagnosis as well. I don't know if it's, there's all this stuff around it. And I don't know if a lot of your patients struggle with this, but like the, the problem of like feeling like you know too much or not, I don't feel like I know too much, but like paralysis by overload of information. Because one thing I think about a lot is I've interviewed a lot of experts like David Sinclair and people like that on epigenetics. And so that's why I think, oh, if, you know, there are all these factors in our genes, but epigenetics, so environment is what's really, you know, changing things. That's why I'm like, oh, must be something I'm doing that's keeping certain genes turned on a certain way. One thing I'm fascinated by, and I tell the story so much just because it made me radically change my view on so many things. Are you familiar with the studies, the the left, I'm sure you probably are, the the left right brain studies where, you know, like people from like the left side, side and like the left language part of the brain will completely just make up stories about why they did certain things based on what they saw. The split brain studies, yeah. Yeah, that was what just completely <laughs> made me rethink things so much because basically these people, when their left and right brain couldn't communicate with each other, the language part of their brain would see things that they had done and not know why because of the setup of the study. And it would just come up with memories. Like it would just come up with stories about why they did that that weren't even true. And then when I read that, I was like, okay, I know nothing. <laughs> like, like I can't, I literally know nothing about life. And then I had, I had my own epiphany one night because I'm always like, maybe if I find this, the, you know, this perfect diet or this perfect thing, that will be the answer to all of these things. And then one night, I remember I had this thought, and I was like, oh, I, you know, felt really good today, and I, I used that plate last night, so it must have been the plate. And then I was like, okay, Melanie, <laughs> you got to stop. Like that's <laughs> that that's that brain. It's it's not exactly the pig, but it's you know this this. It's just fascinating. We want to find a reason for everything. And sometimes it's just not obvious. Yeah. Going back to the subject of what we're talking about, that's why I think your plan is so wonderful for listeners because it kind of brings everything full circle how we started this with, you know, people want to find the emotional reasons. They want to find the why. They want to find all these reasons when you can still address it with this plan and having these nevers, these, you know, well, in the book, there's nevers always, sometimes unconditionals. It's just, it's really, really incredible. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, Melanie. You know, and I think in your case, what you can tell yourself is that you're going to keep pursuing the answer until you find it. And when the salamander says that it's not possible or you're doing something horribly wrong, you're open to being wrong, but you're going to keep pursuing until you find it and you will find the answer. That would be the healthy mindset to maintain and strive for all the time. I love that. And it's ironic, like you said, because in a way that is my mindset, it's like, I'm never going to stop. Um, it's just, I feel like sometimes the salamander gets a little bit more present. <laughs> it's exhausting, but it's the, it's the only answer. It's the only mindset to have. Yeah. The same thing with binge eating for some people, you know, some, some people fall down 20, 30 times before they get it. 
What other answer is there? The name of the game is staying in the game until you win the game. What other choice do we have? And that's one thing you talk about is how, you know, people might think, well, I've tried everything. Like, why would this work? And then I've been this many times. Why now? But there can be. People fail until they succeed. It's like if, if you told your child when they were learning how to walk, oh, you fell down 40 times already. You should just give up and crawl the rest of your life. Failing is a part of succeeding for so many people, for anything worthwhile. Well, this has been so incredible. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you feel you'd really like to put out there for listeners about all of this? You know, there's a lot of things, but I offered the book for free to people on these podcasts. So if it's okay, I'd like to tell them how they can get that. Please, please, please. There are actually three things that would be valuable to you. You get them all at the same place by doing the same thing. Just go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. If you sign up for the reader bonus list, reader bonus list, <laughs> if you sign up for the reader bonus list, you will get three things. You, you will get a free copy of the book on Kindle or Nook or PDF. You can also get the paperback or the Audible, but there's a charge for that. Because I wanted you to hear what a compassionate approach this actually is in practice, because I know it sounds really harsh in theory, you must be thinking, why does Melanie have the psychologist on who has a pig inside of him? Uh, (laughs) I, I recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions. This is all free, which you'll get when you sign up for the reader bonus list. And then I also created a a set of food plan starter templates. So we thought through all the different dietary philosophies that people might be on, like, you know, some people are doing ketogenic these days and other people are whole foods plant-based or point counters or calorie counters, whatever it might be. We came up with a set of sample rules. We call them starter templates because we don't want to take responsibility for what you eat. So you modify them for your own needs with your own nutritional advice, blah, blah, blah. Go to neverbingeagain.com click the big red button and you'll get all that and more. Incredible. I'm so grateful for all of that. For listeners, I'll also put links to all of that in the show notes as well. And again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash never binge again. And beyond that, is there any other way listeners can follow your work, follow you personally? And do you have any other books in the works? (laughs) There are a lot of other ways and a lot of other books, but it all stems from the reader bonus list. If you you sign up for that. You'll find everything on the site that you need. You know, we have a podcast. We have a free forum for readers with 5,000 members. We have a Twitter is not very active. We have an Instagram, which has got some good material on it. Okay, go to neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button, and you'll find everything. Perfect. 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 Well, thank you so much, Glenn. This has been amazing. I'm just so grateful for your work. I know my listeners are as well. And you're doing, I mean, literally, you're changing so many lives. So thank you so much. Thank you, Melanie. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.